0: You will get 15% off, not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Sean Taylor. Now, Sean is a veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces and was one of the founding members of JTF2, their elite special operations unit. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, alcohol, human performance, mountain biking, strength and conditioning, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of fast-approaching 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Sean Taylor. Enjoy. Well, Sean, um, this is our third conversation, so I want to welcome you back to the Behind the Shield podcast again. We had two incredible chats, but you have now spent a week in, excuse me, a month in Europe, um, and I think that this kind of refinding, I think this third conversation is going to be a kind of culmination of all these great primary uh, dress rehearsals that we had. So I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, James, and appreciate you letting me have this conversation after I just got back off vacation. So thanks.
0: So let's talk about that. So obviously, from your accent, people can probably tell that you're from Canada, we're going to get all the way into your you know, the incredible journey you've had in and out of the military. What made you decide to go to Europe? And then why the countries that you chose?
1: That's a great question. So, uh, of course, it's been quite some time since we traveled um, as, as a family to anywhere. Uh, so this was our first big vacation in some time. And we chose Europe specifically because I have family in uh, Northern Ireland. It's uh, I've got a bunch of cousins, aunts, uncles, and my mother uh, still resides in Northern Ireland. So we spent a week there. And then we headed over to the continent. So France and Italy. And uh, our first point of um, of uh, a journey on the continent was Paris. And from Paris, I was keen to go up to Cayenne and uh, see the beaches of Normandy and uh, visit the museum up in Cayenne and spend some time reflecting on World War II history and uh, service and duty and uh, such things. And from there, we then continued down south into Um, Avignon, Nice and Rome, etc. So overall, we were in Europe for almost a month. And uh, it was real good to go over there and see history, of course, culture and uh, food, etc. But it was even more beneficial to give context as to how good we have it here in North America.
0: Now, I know you're a huge coffee connoisseur. Which was your worst cup of coffee and which was your best on all those travels?
1: (laughs) Well, that is a great question. Um, I got to say that um, I am a relentless hunter of good coffee and I appreciate other roasters coffee. I've been roasting myself for about 15 years. And so without a doubt, the worst coffee I had was, uh, I'm going to say it and it's going to be controversial, but most... Italian espressos aren't that good. It's kind of slapped together at haphazard. There's not much care and attention put into Italian espresso. It would be the equivalent of bus station coffee, if I could categorize it as such. On the other hand, there was some amazing cafes who paid some do attention and care to making coffee. And so I had some really amazing uh, coffee shout out to uh, uh, Hub Cafe uh, as an example, but just some good coffees by people who really cared. I think that the continent is, is in a flux state right now where there are places who are really pushing the envelope and setting a new high standard. And there's some that have got a long way to catch up.
0: Brilliant. And then one more thing, I know in Ireland, you were exposing your son to his very first Guinness and you yourself abstain mostly from alcohol. So talk to me about that father-son experience.
1: Yeah, that's right. So um, last time I had a beer uh, prior to this vacation was uh, th- almost exactly three years ago. And I had a Guinness in a place called the Oma uh, Golf and Country Club in uh, Oma County, Tyrone. Northern Ireland. It's where my family base is. And so uh, prior to that, I'd had a beer, I think maybe two or three years before that. Uh, I'm doing my very best to stay away from beer. And man, I love a good beer. I love a good IPA. I am a foodie when it comes to beer, but you know, I, I made a a bargain with myself, and it's I'm staying away from beer, and so I have. Uh, but on this trip, of course, with my two sons, we went to the uh, Golf and Country Club, and and uh, managed to get them their first Guinness. And kind of stoked that their first legit beer was a Guinness poured by my favorite bartender in the world, a guy called Mickey, who's been pouring beers for me for a long, long time. And so uh, that kind of Guinness that I had with my two boys, I mean, it was a really impactful moment. It really kind of meant a lot to me, but for a variety of reasons, many, many layers to that conversation. But without a doubt, that Guinness, and you know, maybe I shouldn't say, but I'm going to it was freaking unbelievable it was so delicious <laughs> it was all it was all i could do to not order a second guinness uh, but i uh, had the one guinness and um enjoyed the moment and carried on but it was really an amazing opportunity to sit at the bar um one of my favorite haunts if you will and have a pint with my two sons <laughs>
0: So I just listened to a really good podcast with uh, Andrew Huberman. Um he's obviously talks a lot about, you know, um neuroscience and and sleep and those kind of things, but this one was on alcohol. And he I think is kind of indifferent to it. He's not a drinker, but he's not someone who's been banging the drum anti-alcohol his whole career, but he just laid it out from a scientific perspective of all the impact it has, you know, any any positive impact. And it was pretty black and white. I mean, as far as the actual compound itself on the human body, is, you know, it's nothing but bad things ultimately. And it's a bit of a pill for a lot of us to swallow that do enjoy wine or beer or whatever it is. Um what was it that took you away from that? I know we're going to talk about human performance in a little while. Which element of alcohol was the real kind of um yeah, the 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 game changer for you that you went from from using it recreationally or socially to abstaining for so long.
1: That's a great question. I wish it was something that was dramatic or something that uh, really would make people sit back in their seats and go, "Oh wow!" But it. it it came down to this. Uh, I had, um, when I was high-performance uh, race coaching, I had a, or someone who I was working with came in and visited us here in Roseland, and they, when they came, they brought a gift for me, and the gift was a really nice farmhouse ale, um, a fermented farmhouse uh, naturally, and wild yeast, et cetera full well knowing that i was an aficionado of uh high quality beers well as it turns out this beer was a bit off and um you know it was only a 650 milliliter 750 milliliter uh, bomber and uh, i might have drank i didn't drink all of it but um man i woke up that morning and i was sicker than a dog um, and so much so that I, you know, about two or three o'clock in the morning, I was in the fetal position right in front of the uh, toilet, uh, uh, puking my guts up, like really sick, like food poisoning sick. And, uh, we were supposed to do a pretty burly ride the next day. And I was just wiped out by being so sick from this funky beer. And, uh, so you know, that afternoon I said, that's it. I'm done with beer no more. And that was, it was not heartbreaking, but it, it really was um, a big decision for me because I, I love the taste of beer, not the result of beer. Uh, so much like a, a foodie who enjoys a good meal, that would be me with the beer. I wasn't, I was, eat, wasn't eating Big Macs to to get fuller and I wasn't drinking beer to get drunk. I was enjoying tastes in a restaurant and I was enjoying tastes with the, the alcohol of choice and not to get drunk. And so once I made that decision, that was it. Uh, I put my foot down and usually when I draw a line in the sand, it stays drawn. And so um, nowadays... Um, my kind of rule with myself is I might have six scotches in a year, six one-ounce shots, and generally two of them will be for a birth, two of them will be for a death, and two are random so that I can assign them not just to births and deaths. So that's generally how I'm running my program now. So when I look back,
0: you know, over and over again, I, I don't drink a lot, but alcohol is clearly a trigger for my migraines, which will give me a two day, in, in their worst times, a two day bout of just horrendous headaches, light sensitivity, vomiting, diarrhea. I mean, just horrendous, horrendous. And when you look at whether it's something like that or whether it's someone who drinks a lot, if you and I went to an Indian curry house and we both had shrimp curry, there's a good chance that we probably never never be able to drink excuse me eat curry again but what's scary about alcohol is people get shit faced. you know swear off alcohol and then 24 48 hours later they're ready to drink again so the the kind of uh, um amnesic element that alcohol has on the suffering that you just endured from it i think parallels nothing else that you can have in the food or drink world
1: yeah it's it's an insidious uh, process or a product i suppose in the sense that you can you can kind of convince yourself that a reset the next day is going to be just fine and you can crack another beer um, I'm sure there's lots of other products out there that uh, a person could sort of make a bargain with themselves and continue on day after day after day. But beer certainly was for me an, an easy one. In fact, I was quite a, quite a chronic uh, drinker, probably an alcoholic uh, way back in the day, uh, the amount of alcohol that I drank. But for me, the uh, and and I listen to the Andrew Huberman podcast. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of his podcast, by the way. Uh, the specific one, I think uh, I forget which episode it was. Maybe not 84, maybe 86 um, about alcohol. And um, yeah, he's right on the money. It is a poison, and it's a difficult subject to discuss openly because a lot of people are aligned with alcohol as a social, um, Uh, lubricant. They enjoy it for the taste. They enjoy it for the experience. They enjoy it for the social camaraderie. I know it's a large part of the military structure uh, in the sense of uh, kind of decompressing after a hard day. There's a lot of uh, parts of society that uh, uh, acknowledge and are okay with alcohol. But the reality is, or at least the science shows that it's straight up from the first sip until the last, a poison. And there are no redeemed. Features at all in respect to alcohol. Now, you know if that's a hard thing to listen to and and nod your head and say that is true. I understand. I mean, I don't even like saying it out loud. And and bravo to Andrew Huberman for uh, putting the point across as clearly as he did. Alcohol is a poison, and if you can strip it out of your life. Uh, then that's a good thing. And if you're struggling to strip it out of your life, now start looking for an alternative or a replacement that is a little more healthier is what I would suggest.
0: Absolutely. I actually found a a craft ginger beer made by a company called Reeds. And Mm, the ginger is so present, like the real ginger taste it's almost like that bite from alcohol and just for me personally that's been a great substitute i mean i feel you know, i can sip on something i can have this unusual taste that isn't water that isn't you know your normal daily drinks isn't coffee um but it, it, it substitutes it because that's just like you i'm not yearning to, to dull my senses and not yearning to to remove myself from reality it's just habitual i think being coming off shift as a firefighter and decompressing through alcohol which is a the, you know not a good choice at all so breaking that habit with a kind of stunt double for alcohol has worked well for me
1: yeah that's that's a really good point uh creating um other opportunities or other alternatives to replace what literally is a poison and you know the um <clears throat> to your point I drank uh, beer or alcohol, as an example, uh, certainly in the latter half of my life, simply for the enjoyment of it or the taste, never for the, again, the the drunkenness of it. And it's the same with coffee. I enjoy coffee. I appreciate the taste of coffee. I roast my own coffee because I love the nuance of the various estates that I bring in uh, green coffee beans from. And uh, so I love the taste. I'm not chasing the caffeine. Uh, in fact, if I could drink good decaf all day long that gave me the same uh, properties or same palate as a uh, a beautiful estate coffee that is caffeinated, man, I'd be drinking decaf coffee all day long just for the taste, just for the enjoyment uh, of the nuance of those various flavors. But um, man, you, you, I can't do that with a IPA anymore. And I chased IPAs up and down the left coast for, for several years, hitting all of the micro breweries, all of the big breweries, uh, Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger, every beer that had a name, I was chasing it uh, for the palate, for the experience of the various tastes, but never for the alcohol. So, you know, back to Europe, I was uh, I was really lucky to be able to have that Guinness with my two boys. Um, and yes, I did want another one. And as I traveled through Europe, I certainly did want to pour a pint off of a old British uh, uh, pub pole um, more times than not. But I didn't because I'd made a deal with myself that it would be one beer in and out. And that was it. And And I kind of stuck to it because either I'm stubborn or I've got a line in the sand or whatever it is, I'd made a deal with myself full well knowing the disadvantage to drinking alcohol.
0: Beautiful. Well, speaking of Ireland, let's start at the beginning of your timeline then. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings.
1: Sure thing. So I was born in England in 1963 in a area called uh, Yorkshire, specifically a town called Barnsley, which was a coal mining town at the time. Um, Yorkshire was a bit rough around the edges in 1963, I will say. Um, I lived in England for approximately 10 years uh, with my mom and dad. I had a brother called Lee, and uh, he was about a year and a half younger than I was. At the age of 10-ish, we migrated, immigrated Uh, over to Canada, a place called Grand Cache in Alberta, the Rockies, another coal mining town. And uh, my dad was working in the pit or in the coal mine um, in Grand Cache. And up until the age of 18, when I graduated high school, uh, I then moved on to the military. So uh, that's my uh, childhood in in a very brief nutshell.
0: Now with the coal mining industry, you know, there's so many professions, you know, yours, yours that you inhabited mine where even though, you know, ultimately you're trying to serve and you're certainly trying to put a roof over your family's head. Some of these professions come at a cost as well. When we think of the miners, we think of illnesses like black lung. Did your father or did any of the people around him suffer from, you know, the consequences of
1: working in the mines? yeah i think so and um you know it's it's nothing that i've ever given a lot of contemplation to in in a medical sense but i will say this uh, at a young age, I did decide to learn the word pneumono ultramicroscopic coniosis, which is a disease from breathing in uh, coal mine dust. And um, not only was it the longest word in the English language, according to the Guinness Book of World Records back in the seventies, um, but it was also something that I thought maybe my dad could get. So I memorized the word, and um, you know, I'm I'm sure that. The underground miners suffered from a number of maladies, um, but I would suggest that the one that they suffered from the most was shift work, um, which they all did, and uh, the uh, negative sort of um, coping mechanism of shift work back then was drinking and so my dad it was not uncommon from him to come back from work uh, with a 12 pack and put a pretty big dent into that every day
0: well also when you think of mines you think of again uh, circadian rhythm disruption they're not seeing daylight for hours and hours and hours
1: oh for sure so i remember um the first time i ever went into an underground mine with my dad and, and I was almost graduated high school. And at that time, some of my friends were quitting high school and were going to work in the underground mine because the pay was so good. And so he said, okay, come on, uh, I'll take you and show you my job. And so, you know, we got, we went into the changing room. There was a bunch of men there. I thought of them as men because I was like maybe 17 years old. And um, it was the first time I ever heard my dad swear. Uh, he was around his uh, workmates or people who work for him. And they were all tossing F-bombs around like uh, it was nobody's business. And so hearing all of the swearing going on, <clears throat> that was a bit of a twist for me. But uh, then we got in the uh, elevator and and went down underground and got down to the uh, lowest levels. And my dad said, "Okay, turn off your uh, headlamp on my helmet. And I did. And it was as black as black can be. And got to say, I didn't like it. And, um, you know, I don't know who would like that environment naturally and, and think, wow, this is awesome. I'm into this for the rest of my life. I don't know. M- maybe there's people out there, but it sure wasn't me. And so in that moment, what I thought was, mm, I'm out of here. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, did the tour with my dad. Uh, he showed me this. He showed me that. A uh, bunch of things going on underground. It was all very interesting, but it was absolutely not a place where I wanted to live my life. So kudos to the guys who do it. Uh, whether they like it or not, uh, I suppose is unimportant, but they do it. Uh, it's not a thing that I was ever interested in doing.
0: So speaking of that, then, when, as you progressed through high school, what were you dreaming of becoming?
1: Well, my mom says I was interested in becoming a soldier from the age of five. And, um, you know, I, I suppose I believe her because uh, I was interested in all things military. Uh, I just wasn't ever sure what as exactly that was going to look like. I did have a poster on my wall as I was coming through high school, a Canadian Army poster that I picked up when I was in Army Cadets um, that I was in for about three years-ish. And uh, the poster was um, an, an infantryman standing at the front of the poster, or was in the foreground, if you will, and then behind him uh, in a kind of a triangular pattern fading off into the background. So the very back line was tanks and aircraft uh, it, it was representing how the infant or the infantryman is the tip of the spear and this is the support behind the man on the front line and i always thought that was a really cool visual representation i've i've actually looked for that poster over the last few years to see if i could find it because i'd love to have it framed and, and hanging up because it was one of the early symbologies that i thought yeah that's kind of what i'd like to do i'd like to have some people prop me up a little bit so that i can get that job done and uh so that was certainly an early influence in in my life Uh, army cadets was uh, an influence and not knowing where it would all end up i just figured that uh, the army was for me for whatever reason from a young age
0: and what about physical preparation were you an athlete prior to entering the military
1: Mm. i was a avid soccer player. I would played soccer from uh, a young age in England. And then when we moved over to Canada, I remained on indoor and outdoor soccer. I love badminton. I loved anything that was fast moving or um, had a lot of uh, kinetic movement. Um, anything that allowed me to express um, velocity with my body was something that I really enjoyed. So I was I was a pretty natural athlete, but I wouldn't go so far as to say I was a a programmed athlete. And by that, I mean no one was guiding me. I wasn't guiding myself. I just loved moving, and I liked moving fast.
0: So walk me through your journey into the military. I know pretty early on in your career, you had a pretty traumatic event right off the bat.
1: Yeah, so I joined in 1983, and I joined into the infantry, the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. I went off to battle school. It was a direct entry into battle school, so unlike... uh, Uh, a typical basic training program back in that time uh, where they would go three months out on the East coast for kind of general training, and then three months off to a battle school to get formal infantry training. I entered on day one into a six month program that was uh, just all about the infantry. And so that was a, probably a harsher entry into the infantry, but in my opinion, it was a better uh, entry because right from the get-go you were being formed or shaped in a way that you were going to be more effective as an infanteer once you got spit out of the back end of the six-month program. So uh, I would say that the basic training was harsh and um, and informative in the way that it needed to be. And approximately halfway through that six-month uh, program, we headed off in what was called a adventure training week. And that meant that we went up into Northern Alberta in vehicles and spent almost a week out in the middle of nowhere and living in A-frames or under tarps, uh, if you will, uh, out in the field uh, kind of learning how to snare rabbits and 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 create traps and survive on the on the land by your own et cetera. how to start a fire with the uh, sticks etc so that was the basis of that week now at that point once the uh, um, training had finished We formed up in our vehicle convoy and loaded up what is called a a deuce and a half or a two and a half ton truck, a a, a cargo carrier, if you will. Um, And we overloaded it with too many guys and we overloaded it with a bunch of equipment uh, with uh, axes and picks and barbed wire and six foot steel pickets and rucksacks and weapons and this and that. Lots of objects, too many objects in the back of that truck. And... Uh, w- given that it was overloaded, we couldn't get anything more in. Everyone looked at each other at the command structure at that point and said, "Okay, let's go." And the vehicles took off and left the the Deuce and a Half uh, to make its own way back to camp. Now, as it turns out, we were when we departed, we were the only vehicle by quite a few minutes uh, operating by itself. So we were just heading down the road in a vehicle that was well overburdened on f- on tires that were bald with no first aid kit and no comms and so as we headed down this gravel road at speed it started fishtailing and the truck flipped uh the tires went fully sideways they bit in and we did a full 360 in the air um So it it was interesting to create that much velocity sideways for such a big truck with so many guys in the back. It's hard to imagine that that happened. And yet it did. And so uh, the outcome of that was as the vehicle uh, landed uh, on its roof, uh, the deuce and a half truck at that time had wooden hoops. Uh, big wooden hoops that supported a canvas roof. Well, we landed on the roof, and all of the wooden uh, struts broke, and our body weights landed on that uh, on on that carb uh, that tarp that canvas tarp that uh, formed the roof, and the truck com- continued to flip, and of course the roof tore off, and we were all laying in a jumble uh, amongst a bunch of gear and twenty plus guys. And so, uh, I heard someone yell, "It's gonna blow!" and uh, and I was as as I heard that I was actually looking at the truck, and it was bouncing from tire to tire to tire to tire, um, and I thought it is gonna blow for whatever reason, I stood up and just started blindly running for about 10 seconds. By the time I stopped, I turned back and looked, and it was quite a mess that I was looking at. There was guys were scattered all over the place. And uh, the first guy that I came came onto, uh, he was walking towards me, and he was pretty shocked out already. And I just said, hey, just hang on a sec. And I grabbed uh, his ear, which was dangling by a tiny little piece of skin uh, upside down. And I put it right way up, kind of stuck it to the side of his head, grabbed his hand, said, you got to hold your ear in place. <clears throat> and now I need you to go stand over there and you're going to be the triage area. And so um, at that point, as I stood there and, and looked at the triage area and looked at what I was uh, going to be dealing with in the next little while, uh, I had no idea uh, how I was going to deal with it because we were only three months into basic training. We had had no formal first aid training. I was lucky that when I was growing up in Grand Cash, my dad had um, not insisted, but encouraged me to go into a... Um, a first aid response team or a emergency uh, first aid response team uh, training to compete provincially, and so I'd already gone through two three years of scenario based training where uh, it was completely common uh, each night that we would train for me to walk into a room with a variety of different injuries uh, and and such fake blood, fake breaks, fake this, fake that, that I would have to deal with two or three times in one night. So I was really used to dealing with these kind of scenarios, but pretend acting. And so um, when this thing was sprawled out in front of me, and now it was real, um, I just kind of got right with it and said, okay, here we go. And uh, so I kind of moved quickly over to the first person that I saw who was sitting up uh, kind of almost staring at the sky. And as I got to him, he fell backwards and his eyes rolled into the back of his head and and I, and I, that was the first time it kind of got real. And I just kind of relied on my um, high school training and, uh, you know, tried to clear his mouth and tried to put him in the recovery position and tried to do mouth to mouth resuscitation on him. But his lungs had been crushed and all I was getting out of his mouth was kind of like jello. Um, and, And I worked on him for about a minute and then I had to decide, well, I guess he's dead and now I need to move on to the next person, which was the first time I'd ever had to make that determination of that hard triage of deciding life or death. And quite frankly, there was nothing I could have done for him in that moment, but it was still a moment where I had to come to that conclusion of, oh, I'm making that decision now. And I simply moved on to the next guy who, by the way, uh, also died. And um, as it turns out through the accident, three guys uh, died uh, because of the accident. And pretty much everyone else was walking wounded, mostly shocked out or or zombied or massive breaks. Or um, I I can think of one guy that uh, we ended up pulling out of the back of the vehicle. He'd been trapped under a bench and his face was so smashed in that I, I couldn't have even told you what his name was, though I'd been working alongside with him for three months at that point. And so, everyone really got messed up and because we had no first aid kit, we were literally taking our t shirts off and tearing strip tearing them into strips to sling a guy or to uh, stop bleeding or to whatever and and so by the time the paramedics arrived with the ambulances, which was about just shy of an hour um it looked like a scene from the Lord of the Flies. Guys didn't have shirts on. they were covered in blood. They were shocked out. It. it was a bit of a mess and uh, good on the <clears throat> good on the paramedics for showing up uh, in the way that they did. Man, as soon as they showed up, I just felt like these guys have got it under control. it It was like a sigh of relief for me. Uh, i felt like i was working underwater the whole time just trying to barely breathe and and save people or work on people but when the paramedic showed up man it, it the professionalism that they demonstrated and the care and attention and the um i guess the kindness of don't worry we've got this just uh, let us take care of it now uh, it was a it was a real relief for me at that time i, I I don't know who those guys were. I wish I did because I would send them a thank you note.
0: The saddest thing is when we lose men and women in training in our professions. When you look back now with your lens, not specifically obviously tires were bald, you know, trucks were overloaded, but more on on a leadership scale, what were some of the underlying issues that contributed to that event happening in the first place?
1: Well, I think that uh, you raised a good point. And, um, you know, the lessons learned out of that incident, <clears throat> I'm unsure if anything was learned up the chain of command, but certainly I learned it. And <clears throat> I will say that that incident, that was the first time that I'd ever been involved with uh, any, anyone who I served with dying. Um, that, that, left a big mark on me in the sense that uh, I just thought things could have been done better. And and I always um, used it as a milestone as to I will do things better. And so command and control, safety of my men, um, et cetera, et cetera. These are all things that were shaped that day and um, with a conviction and years and years later i still reflected back on that incident as a what not to do versus how to do things better
0: yeah and sadly i think that's that's a a lot of us you know i mean there are great leaders in our departments and there are more often than not a lot of terrible leaders and if you don't learn from that as well you're missing half the lesson
1: it's true and you know the the reality is that um the the difference between a good leader and a bad leader is sometimes only observed when things go sideways, and so that uh, that um, vision of he or she is a great leader uh, is it, it can be true if it's all based in the office. Or if it's all based on when uh, celebrities come by and there's a smile and handshakes, or in moments where there are, uh, you know, there needs to be beaming faces and they're a great leader because they really know how to speak with certain uh, people. But when things go sideways, uh, the the true mark of a leader is uh, what they do in those moments of chaos. And uh, unfortunately, the paper leader uh oftentimes isn't a very good field leader. And so the uh important distinction that I would make is uh, a good and bad leader sometimes can't be understood in the office. But when things go sideways, that's when you really learn what a guy or girl is all about. Yeah,
0: I agree completely. I think we saw that during the COVID epidemic or pandemic, excuse me. I mean, countries even, I think that were revered for good leadership and this I'm you know this is from the outside looking in I'm sure people in the countries may have a differing view but New Zealand seemed to to have their head screwed on and we saw some bizarre choices there Canada and in the US we got to see both parties fuck it up in the same uh you know pandemic so you couldn't blame one or the other they were both as fucking awful as each other so Yeah, i think i agree with you completely look at that not only that that time but i just did a post on this this morning look now now that has come and gone what is that leadership doing to improve the physical and mental health of your nation if it's already switched to ukraine and gas prices and monkeypox then there's a huge void leadership in that country
1: well yeah and to your point and so speaking of just being in europe for the month um man the um the differences that we saw from city to city from country to country and from transportation system to transportation system there there's very little commonality or very little cohesiveness in in the uh, we'll call it a universal approach to dealing with coronavirus and so um to that point we would be in the paris subway system with hundreds and hundreds of people in very confined spaces and no masks because you weren't required to wear them. Um, same with on certain uh, other transportation systems or in the Louvre, as an example. Man, it was chock-a-block in there. There was, I don't know, maybe 10,000 people through there that day. It was unbelievable and and very few, if any, masks. And, you know, as Canadians, we, we just we just flown over in in a Canadian airplane Air Canada and uh, it's masks the entire flight. So you've got a mask on for 10 and a half hours, you land and, and now we're in Ireland and Ireland's dealing with it in a certain way in, in certain circumstances, and then bam over to the continent and they're dealing with it in a certain way in certain circumstances, but no, no universal approach. And so when it came time for us to fly back to Canada We had been so unmasked in so many hundreds of thousands of people that when it came time to board on our flight again, again, a 10 and a half hour flight, it was back to masks on. I was like, man, you know, I I would just love for us all to get our act onto the same sheet of paper.
0: Absolutely. And again, there's something I said right from the beginning. I would like the conversation to truly be about health. You know, and masks and vaccines, um, you know, on top, a-, a bandaid of a mask and a vaccine on top of a chronically obese, sick population is not a discussion on health. If you're not addressing the underlying element, the virus is opportunistic on the weak and the vulnerable, ultimately. Even these anomalies that passed away, clearly, you know, somewhere under that seemingly fit person was a was a weak link in the chain, whether it was their immune response or whatever it was. But the fact that we've now discarded that whole conversation with the masks and vaccines shows that it was never about an altruistic love of the men and women and children in your country that you, you put your hand on your heart and you wanted to protect their welfare. Because the only countries that can say that are the ones that after this all passed I would say Norway, Sweden, you know Japan, some of these other ones that are still focusing on their nation's health, those are the ones you can say that was good leadership. And those are the ones, ironically, that had the, the lowest numbers of deaths per capita. But let's take the US, the UK, all that fucking smoke and mirrors with, you know, don't be selfish, get this, get that. And then the moment this has come and gone, no mention of underlying health again. That is a huge red flag for the people of the country to say, all right, you know, something needs to change. This is, as you just said, this was, a, you know, a, a, a catastrophe in our country. Your leadership was an absolute failure. We need to clean house and find some real people.
1: So I've been struggling with this as a subject ever since we landed in Canada after the month in Europe. And um, I, man, I've I've spent day after day thinking about a way to say this without being too confrontational, and and not not here on your podcast. I mean, just in my own little goofy Instagram page, I, I've been trying to think each day how best to put this point across without really alienating people, without making a certain segment of society feel. Uh, shame or or feel like uh, he's talking about me and and I, I hate the way that makes me feel. Um, so when we landed in Canada after that month, Europe now maybe it's because they smoke a lot and stay kind of skinnier I'm not sure but Europe as a whole is uh, fitter and thinner than North America. And so as we traveled obesity, was far less prevalent than it is here in North America. Now, <clears throat> I I know that. I know that statistically. I know that from many other previous uh, travels. But coming back into Canada, we uh, as we sat there in the airport waiting for our next flight, we were in Calgary for nearly uh, three hours. I I just sat there and people watched. Seven out of ten people, I would suggest, were obese and probably um, four out of ten people were severely obese. And 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 that's a huge or a marked difference between what we had been seeing just twelve hours prior. And so the idea of people walking through a, a massive airport uh which which was arguably, I could look down the size of a football field and everyone being mandated to wear their masks. And and there's enough space in there that you had a bubble around you of 10, 20 feet if you wanted. Uh, Everyone mandated to wear masks, but um, maybe four out of 10 people could barely breathe, not because of the mask, but because they're walking and being so severely obese, they could barely keep their breath because they were completely, uh, they were lacking fitness and they were carrying so much additional body weight that they were puffing and panting and sweating, just walking down a hallway and it had nothing to do with the mask. And so... um you know, I think the reality is that uh, the coronavirus is something that has to be managed, of course, appropriately, but far more importantly, as a baseline, people's health needs to improve, and that's through a process of education and the understanding. And even for me, as a pretty seasoned traveler and 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 being an athlete and keeping an eye on obesity as a as a global problem, man you need to step away from it to see how prevalent it is in North America. All of the numbers on a piece of paper will tell you one thing, but until you go see a continent that is not obese to come back to a continent that is extremely obese, it's, it's a thing. And, and it's, uh, it's shameful that we're letting it, uh, continue to, build and build and build on itself as a normal uh, way of living. You can eat and eat and eat and not look after yourself. And then when things go a little sideways, blame it on something else other than yourself. Absolutely. I think that the
0: misunderstanding is a conversation like this is coming from a place of kindness and compassion. When you, especially, you know, my profession, when you are the paramedic, that puts the tube down the person's throat every single shift that puts the, ch- the pads on their chest and then ultimately pulls a sheet over their body. You have a completely different lens than what most people are sold. Well, go to your doctor and ask for these medications and you'll be fine. You'll be able to dance all these models and everything will be amazing. Bullshit. That's an absolute, you know, fallacy. The reality is your lifespan will be cut in, sh- you know, maybe in half. You'll never get to use the gift of physicality that you were born with. You won't be able to do all these different things with your kids. You probably never even see your grandkids. That's the reality. So these conversations are coming from people who they themselves are in shape, saying, Look, this is, you know, I get to see what what my body can do. And I'm by no means an elite athlete in any way, shape, or form. But it's amazing. I get to do jujitsu with my my son and Spartan races and all these things. I just want you to find your potential for yourself. You might be an elite gymnast, powerlifter, whatever or you might just be someone who likes going hiking with your dog. It doesn't matter. But if your obesity is holding you back from something that in your heart you've always wanted to do, that is heartbreaking. So these conversations on improving, you know, the education on food, this, the food in our schools, PE programs, you know, removing this environment that encourages disease that we have no pedestrian system, fast food on every corner. These people are doomed. To get fat and get sick. So it's not picking on the person and saying, why don't you have a discipline? It's taking both conversations. Yes, we need to create an environment that then encourages discipline and good choices in people. If all your choices are good choices in a community, you're going to make good choices. If 90% of the choices in your community are fucking awful choices, there's a high, high chance that you're going to start, start slipping down the road of fast food and um, inactivity
1: that's true and i think there's two things that can make an instant change and the first one is start looking for people who are doing it right Surround yourself with good people who are active and, and uh, well-educated in not just physical performance, but just how to be a better human being. And, and you can do that through a number of podcasts, or you can do that in isolation of, of listening to anyone else. You just simply have to start moving and, uh, and, and I think the one of the things that holds people back from moving, whether they step onto a jujitsu mat or they put their, their, their foot over a bike or they grab a pair of walking poles, it doesn't matter how you're moving. One of the things that holds people back is they feel that, you know, well, I'm, I'm 40, I'm overweight or I'm obese. I was never an athlete. What, what would convince me now? Uh, that I am an athlete or I could be an athlete. Well, to your point, you just don't know what's hidden underneath all of that stuff. You don't know what's hidden inside of you until you start exploring your potential. And where's the downside? Um, You know, if you're a better version of yourself tomorrow, well, congratulations. And now you can build on that and see where it takes you in a year or 10. And uh, I think that one of the things that holds people back is, they, um, they decide to maybe do something, but then they project forward or they visualize forward and, and think, uh, but who am I to want to jump over hurdles or to uh, throw a discus or a javelin? Who am I to dream that dream? you're the right person to dream that dream. All you got to do is step off every day and 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 pursue whatever gets you stoked and time will take care of the rest. I think that we get in front of ourselves and say, okay, that's my dream, but I'll never be able to do that because it's so much work or that's four years from now or no one will ever support me. I'll forget about all that white noise. Don't even worry about those things. Just move. Get an idea in your head and go pursue it just for a day or two or 10 or 100 and see where it takes you.
0: Well, speaking of human potential, getting back on your military path, you entered infantry. Walk me through special forces selection and then the inception of the kind of the most elite
1: tier in the Canadian Armed Forces. Sure. So when I joined in 83, I joined as an infantryman. And uh, I was fortunate that um, I managed to line up or get aligned into some really good, um, what I would call um, supportive uh, qualification courses that would uh, eventually lead me to special operations. And uh for lack of a better term, they were hard charger courses, ones that um, were difficult enough that you just didn't casually raise your hand and say, yeah, I'll give that a try. These were things that you had to fully commit to, uh, and there would be a cost to each course in the sense of physical, mental, and emotional toll. But that's the price you pay in order to chase um excellence, or you chase that tip of the spear journey. When I was in my infantry career, at the time, Tier 1 or Joint Task Force 2 did not exist. And so um, I was pursuing the tip of the spear within the, I'll call it, regular army. And that was through the process of becoming a pathfinder and an army sniper and and recon and stuff like that. But uh, at the time, there was no uh, elite, we'll call it, uh, unit in the System other than the Canadian Airborne Regiment, which, by the way, in my opinion, was elite enough uh, within two Commando and Pathfinder platoon. Um, But beyond that, there was no uh, higher level than the Canadian Airborne Regiment. But in 1992, that changed. A forces-wide memo went out and that memo kind of said, and I'll paraphrase here, uh, we can't tell you what you're going to do. We can't tell you how long you're going to do it. We can't tell you where you're going to go, but it's going to be hard. And so I thought, hmm, that's for me. And um, so I put my name in the hat and, and it was a bit of a process, but eventually I got onto selection and selection at the time, nobody knew anything about it because, again, the unit was just being formed, so selection hadn't really been run. So there was no word on the street as to what it uh, entailed. We just knew that it was about a week of a solid beat down in a, and, and a psychological emotional test at the same time. And and so, you know, off I went to selection and uh, yeah, it was tough. And it did test a bunch of things that I had no idea were going to be tested. And, you know, that process is now a little out into the open and people know more about it. But at the time, again, uh, the unit was so top secret that, you know, it didn't even have a name really. And so none of us knew anything about selection. Uh, after selection. Uh, I uh, I got badged as a special operations assaulter. And uh, shortly after that, I had to move on to special operations sniper. Being an army sniper, there were so very few of us uh, at the time that uh, I got moved over to help form or be a part of forming the sniper team within uh, JTF2.
0: So, again, you're talking about the tip of the spear. Obviously, the the base of that pyramid is huge, and it, and it diminishes as you go higher and higher. Therefore, a huge attrition rate. What physically and mentally allowed you to make it all the way through when so many others
1: rang the bell? Mm. So, yeah, the, the attrition rate is quite extreme. I mean, just to get to selection course says something about you. And uh, so that first wave of, uh, we'll call them volunteers, which we all were, um it it kind of skimmed off the cream of the crop of the military and i know that some people take maybe offense to that or will kind of tilt their head sideways and say say what but that's exactly what happened is the cream of the crop of the military uh, decided or, or asked or, or were pushed towards trying selection. And uh, the reason it was cream of the crop is because at the time, and, and I, I think it would still be the same, um, the process of selection is so adverse that um, you, you just can't be an average human being and expect to pass that uh, selection process. And, and that's just phase one. Of, of a multi-phase operation. And so um, it did skim off the cream of the crop. And once we got there, uh, through selection, uh, there was a lot of other adverse uh, sort of uh, selection-based uh, testing in order for us to become fully badge members. And there's times in there where, man, the going is tough. The um, standards that had to be achieved were extremely rigid, very, very strict, and and so difficult to attain that guys to my left and right who i thought were better men than me sometimes didn't make it because the standard was so so hard to hit and maybe they would have hit it the day before or maybe they would have hit it the day after but on that particular day when it was that particular test there's no room for error and you're gone and so um good friends of mine who i thought would make it uh, didn't make it, and it wasn't because of any uh, shortcomings per se. It wasn't anything that they did wrong, or they 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 didn't have the parts. We'll call it. It was none of that. It sometimes it's just mm, a bit of bad luck. Sometimes it was just a nagging injury. Sometimes it was just woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and it didn't play out for them that day. But again, there was no room for error, and so you were. In, in order to pass selection and, and move on to becoming a, a badge member, you had to have a few things going for you. You had to be extremely competent at your job. You had to be extremely physically fit, very switched on, rapid thought process, be able to delineate in the milliseconds. And you had to be gritty uh, or be comfortable in adverse conditions. And so back to your question, what did I do when things got a little tough? Well, they were always pretty tough. I relied on what I call my stubbornness, but that stubbornness comes from facing a lot of adversity throughout the my military career that had led me up to selection. And so one of the things that I that I faced a lot of adversity in was my 70-day-long Pathfinder course extremely difficult course uh, for sleep and food and workload output and command responsibilities and et cetera, et cetera. That course set me up for JTF too because any anytime that I was facing adversity through selection, I could always kind of rely on or think back to, mm, man, I've done harder things. And so I think that would be the overarching theme in respect to your question is when difficult things came up, I could always look back and think, man, I've done harder. And so adversity really is key. The more adversity that you can absorb, the more you can make the abnormal normal, the better you are prepared for the higher up you go in the towards the tip of the spear sort of command responsibilities.
0: So again, circling around to, you know, the state of the nation at the moment, um, of course, we've got some incredibly fit, incredibly resilient men, women, and children in Canada, in America, who despite some of the environments, or maybe because of it, because they grew up in a rural town, they grew up on a farm, whatever it was, um, you know, are, are separate from this conversation. But taking the, the sad fact that 70% of our men and women are obese or overweight, um, that then makes you take a step back and go, well, that pool then for the military, for police, for fire, for a lot of the other, uh, professions that require us to be physically and mentally resilient and, and capable. Um, it's shrinking. And then we, all of us, I mean, I'm sitting in, in a, in a house now with a, in a AC unit at 75. So we're all exposed to more comfort. Um, what is your perspective of, as, as Michael Easter calls it, the comfort crisis, the the comforts that we've built, which are a beautiful tool for us, also working against us when resiliency is required?
1: That's a great question. And and I think that I have a bit of a – I'm not sure if it's an advantage or a disadvantage in the sense that from, from the my youngest age, um, so kind of from 12, 13 years of age – I was out in, in Grand Cache nearly every day, either hunting or fishing. So it was quite common for me to grab my twenty-two caliber rifle and and just head out with a buddy with a can of baked beans and an apple. And we'd hunt all day. And at lunchtime, we'd bake the apple, heat up the can of baked beans, and, and then continue hunting the rest of the day. In in winter, uh, minus 30 by ourselves, without comms, without compasses, without anything, we would just literally wander the bush and hunt rabbit. And so that's kind of how I was raised. And then I was into the military and the military continued raising me in adversity. And so my, my comfort with adversity is, is um, perhaps not common uh, within the general population, but it, it was at one time, there was a time in Canada where adversity was common and so uh, people weren't, I don't want to say freaked out, but people weren't bothered by, you know, a really bad storm, or if the car broke down on the side of the road, or if, uh, you know, something XYZ was uh, had gone a bit sideways, people were more comfortable with that because they'd faced it. Uh, more than once. And so that's how my childhood and and military career went. So when things got to that more adverse level, um, I could easily manage those situations. Now we have a population that, um, as you um, point out, approximately 70%, certainly in the U.S., are overweight uh, to obese. And, and I think that's because people have disconnected from nature. I think people have disconnected from looking for discomfort. And I, I look at the tools that you just mentioned, the AC set at 75, the, this, that, the, the other creature comforts that we have. I look at those things as my recovery tools. And so I go out there and I, I, I put it on myself. I I go ride my mountain bike hard, or I go do jujitsu hard, or I do whatever I do that is going to put me uh, in a, in a position of adversity. And that's what I seek. That's, that's where I'm happiest is seeking adversity. Then when I get home, my creature comforts, those are just my recovery protocols to set me up for the next day where I'm going to go seek some more adversity.
0: And I absolutely love that because then you're not being extreme and saying, well, I'm just going to live in a wooden shack then, you know, and go back to primitive times. You, you, you seek your discomfort. And I do the same thing. I've crossfit, jujitsu. I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, you're suffering and you have good days and bad days. I don't perform 100% in those some days and other days I'm on point and, you know, really crush myself. But, but yeah, looking at those comforts as not only recovery, but I think there's also gratitude for them then when you've been in, for example, you know, in, in firefighter gear doing a gear workout or fighting a fire in 100 degrees in florida with a thousand you know percent humidity and then you come back and you go oh ac is nice versus all you've ever known is ac a you don't give it a second thought and b you're not adding stress to the mind and the body that it can then as you said rest and recover
1: in those creature comforts so i love that yeah you know the um the reality is when you say live in a wooden shack, I mean, within my military career, I've spent many weeks just living in a hole in the ground, sometimes covered, sometimes not. And um, man, it takes you right back to the caveman basics of, wow, when it rains, I get really wet. And when it's cold, I get really cold. And when it's hot, I get really hot. And I'm still living in a hole in the ground. And this isn't ideal. And so... Going through that process, I, that should have been enough of a formative moment or moments where, as I stand here today, I should be able to be extremely grateful or have um, gratefulness for how comfortable I am right now standing in my office uh, with technology and and all of its comforts, being able to have this conversation with you. And there's times in my life where my bandwidth of suck versus awesome, I should be able to calibrate those really well and think, oh man, this is really awesome because I've experienced really suck. But the truth of the matter is, James, that I forget from time to time. And um, and and my wife reminds me from time to time of uh, an, an attitude of gratitude. And she's right to remind me from time to time. And so, I think that no matter who you are how how mu- no matter how much suck you've faced in, in the wildest career for however many decades it's been if if you think that that was enough for you to have the lifelong lesson burned into your mind that I will never sloppily make the mistake of not having an attitude of gratitude again mm, i don't know i i, I can't i fail at that, uh, and I have to be reminded. So, if you're if you can't do it yourself, then try to surround yourself with good people who give you the reminder when it's needed. Of have an attitude of gratitude. Beautiful. Well,
0: you're in JTF two um, prior to nine eleven. I'm always intrigued with people whose service has straddled that pivotal event, especially in the military. What what differences did you see in training preparation? Um, or even deployments pre-9-11, and how did that contrast post-9-11?
1: So that's a good question, and I'm going to answer it uh, honestly, but then part of it will be academic towards the back end of the question, I suppose. So first off, when I joined JTF2, or when I was badged into JTF2, we were, again, we weren't formally existent, or it didn't exist prior to me uh, going through selection, And so that would mean uh, I'm a plank holder, which is a term that denotes uh, the first members of the unit. And so my career with JTF2 as a plank holder was predominantly focused on getting the, the team or getting us, getting me up to speed on all of the roles and responsibilities that we would have nationally and internationally. And that was quite a handful because we were starting not quite from a blank slate, but day one, we were kind of making up day one. And on day 10, we were kind of making up day 10. And so every day, uh, every morning that uh, we were breakfast with my guys, or I was with uh, with our crew, um, we kind of look at each other and say, what are we doing today? and we would we would get our crazy on and uh, and execute against it, and always pushing the envelope as to um, more and more excellence and so through those years, uh, we were predominantly focused on. Expanding our abilities, and then beginning to work with our um, uh, our our friendly nations um, that were also at that time tier one. So predominantly the United States and and Great Britain uh, with their tier one units. So that was my experience with JTF two. Um, and of course, there's things that I can't talk about, but I can generally state that it was an extremely busy time. But I left the teams before uh, 9-11, so I didn't have any post-9-11 operational experience to make the comparisons against. But what I can say is this, and this is the academic part, I did keep my eye on the ball. And, of course, I have got friends who stayed in that game. And my loose observation is this. Prior to 9-11, we were busy um, getting good and and doing work of course uh, overseas but once um once that event occurred i would suggest that v- less of a jack of all trades master of none the focus then became more focalized in respect to a precise mission set with uh, a precise or a more precise uh, focus on what was going to be occurring over the next several years, and so things would have tightened up on a on a tighter bandwidth sense if that if that makes sense
0: no, it does completely. I think your profession you know the 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 global special operations special forces warriors are, are great people to to ask about preparation because it seems like you are the best group of you know men and or women. When it comes to, okay, let me figure out what might happen where I see that falling a lot in, in fire and police, where in some great progressive departments, there are, you know, amazing training and scenario based training and, you know, worst case scenarios. Um, I've worked for a place where, you know, we had one of the biggest near misses in American history and nothing came of it at all. It's, it's got the, it hasn't happened. So it will never happen mentality. How, how do we educate the, air quotations, leaders to prepare not only for your day-to-day usual, you know, threats, calls, whatever you want to call them, but actually, you know, plan out for some of these bigger things, whether it's a gunman in a in a Las Vegas hotel or, you know, whatever it is that we see on the news sometimes?
1: That's a great question. And I think, uh, to your and um, I would agree that certainly within tier one or that sort of level of special operations, I believe that the individual has to be able to think outside of the box. Uh, Certainly, it's not a conventional mindset. And, And again, I think the more unconventional you can think, the more value you bring to the conversation in respect to tier one. That doesn't mean that you have to be a complete individual thinking crazy things. Of course, you would never make it through day two of selection but you need to be independently minded and you need to be independently operating uh within the world's problems so that you can see unique solutions perhaps and so that i i believe is is a common trait within um that tip of the spear or we'll call it the general term i believe is that elite warrior mindset you need to be highly fluid and thinking outside of the box with unconventional solutions. Now, in respect to the other part of the question, what do our leaders do, what, whether it's fire or whether it's police or whatever the uh, institution is, or quite frankly, even corporations? What what do these entities, um, What, how do they do it better, not just today, but in the future, I think... If, if it hasn't happened already within these various organizations, it's because the resource doesn't exist to help them move forward in a little bit more of an unconventional way. And so how do you do that? Man- just look around. Just just ask who's the most unconventional guy in the organization, and sit down and spend half a day with them, or reach out to various organizations. One that I think of down in the U.S. who um, has an excellent reputation for leadership and has a excellent reputation for thinking uh, kind of outside of the box in in as to how to run an organization is uh, Echelon Front uh, with Jocko Willink and uh, and the gang. Leaf Babbin, etc. Those guys, at least from an outsider's perspective, are doing their level best to teach organizations how to properly lead, how to properly move forward, how to properly support their employees and, and the various relationships that each uh, entity would have. And so I think it comes down to this: If a organization wants to do it better, and they've exhausted all of the means that are internal, to the organization, man, start looking around outside of the organization, maybe hire a special operations, uh, former special operations, or someone who has kind of had that unconventional career that can maybe just recalibrate in a small way how to approach the future. I
0: love it. Yeah, I've had uh, several of them. Jock has been on twice. I had JP, Dave Burke, and Leif's actually going to be coming on soon. So, yeah, I mean, it's an, a group of amazing men and women, and I've had people who've gone through their programs who are, in my opinion, some of the, the best police chiefs, for example, and they, they rave about Echelon Front.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, let's let's talk about that for a second and think think about it. That Echelon Front, if I recall correctly, didn't exist like even five years ago, certainly not 10 years ago. And so, it's not... Echelon Front didn't um, create or uh, invent leadership. Leadership has been around a long time. But leadership... I mean, 2,000 years ago, you can break out books that talk about leadership. But leadership is not something that... It um, can be written down on a single sheet of paper and, and, and never change as hard and fast rules. Leadership evolves within each organization. Leadership is a learned thing. It's, you, you aren't, I don't think you're born with it per se but you can certainly educate yourself towards it. And it should be a lifelong process. The higher up you move in the chain of command, whether it's a corporation or whether it's a military organization or police or fire, the higher up you go, the more you should be focused on educating yourself in leadership. And that requires courses and books and almost daily conversation with your peers and your subordinates about how to do leadership better. I do know of organizations that have leaders in it that couldn't lead their way out of a wet paper bag. They couldn't lead themselves out of a wet paper bag, never mind others. And so the, it, which is a terrible thing, but it is a reality. And that is occurring or that has occurred because leadership is considered a uh, uh, almost a passive skill where either you're a good leader or you're not. And if you're not a good leader, ah, that's too bad. Um, and then it's left at that. But there's no consideration to mm, how do you get better? Well, how you get better is you do your homework. You crack open the books or you go Join a, um, a weekend or a week getaway with a, a, an organization like Echelon Front, who, again, didn't invent leadership, but they are putting it out there on the front and center so that anyone who is interested in getting better at leadership can hop on board and get better at leadership.
0: Beautiful. Actually, I was just speaking to Jamie, um, who's basically Jocko's right-hand woman. And I think they're, for the first time ever, they're going back to Dallas and they're coming back here to Orlando next year as well. So anyone listening in those two cities, you can expect them to return to your city. So you have a second chance of attending. Um I, I want to pose a question to you. And again, we don't need dates and specifics, but I think it's very important for people to hear the perspective of the soldier, you know, boots on the ground. I always preface this the same way. Certainly here in the US, we get a very polarizing view of war through the through the screens. Either a very pro war, let God, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out, very anti war, they're all baby killers. And rarely do we hear, as Sebastian Junger puts it, you know, the, the, um, uh, oh my God, Veterans Day town hall, the, the you know, the actual men and women that serve telling their stories. So, Regardless of the politics that sent you to, you know, country X, were there moments where you realized that there were horrible people that needed to be taken care of? And then after that, were there moments of kindness and
1: compassion amidst some of that chaos? Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, I think one of the realities, certainly I I can only speak for the Canadian Armed Forces, is um, I think that as a organization or Canada as a whole has a pretty good reputation of being a humanitarian based nation. And so um, moving that to the side for a moment, any task that the Canadian military deploys against uh, first and foremost is mission specific. So if it's over there to do humanitarian aid, then that is what is done. But if the mission is to um, fight against uh, an oppressor or fight against an enemy or fight against the bad guy well that if that's a mission priority that's what's going to get done and then humanitarian aid is going to be secondary to that But I think regardless of how far down the totem pole humanitarian aid falls, whether it's the third or the 12th point in the sequence of events, eventually Canadians are going to get involved in humanitarian aid. And I would argue the same would be said for the United States as well. But again, I'm only speaking for Canada. So definitely there are hard times where hard things were done, but in very short order, humanitarian aid was uh, provided so
0: pulling out specifics with with the the oppression element i think you know we we create a boogeyman with the whole country so a perfect example is we're at war with afghanistan no we're not the people of afghanistan are being terrorized by extremists and we're in there trying to help um were there any was it like a first time specific event where the nations that you found yourself in you witnessed some of the atrocities that were happening in that country in that kind of you know added another layer to the realization of what you were doing was
1: much needed. I'll tell you a a moment that I first realized the negative impact on a soldier in respect to that kind of adversarial situation. And um, we may or may not have been in Rwanda. And so at that, after that event or, not at the very tail end of that event but uh, after that had been done um one of my good friends um he he was never the same again and the the horrors that he saw um the the shock that he endured the carnage that he was involved in it was it, it was life changing for him uh, never be the same again And, you know, you can process it all you want. You can sit down and talk with a buddy over a beer or a coffee, or you can talk to whoever you want, but you're never the same again. And so, you know, there was was moments part of that, uh, part of me being on the teams that I saw this kind of thing from different guys. But for whatever reason, that one instance, um, I won't say his name, but uh, man, he, he was changed so much that I I barely recognized him to some degree. Well, and correct
0: me if I'm wrong, in the Rwanda um, genocide, basically men, women, and children were literally being hacked to death with machetes en masse. That's right. That's yeah. right. Horrendous. Yeah. Well, conversely then, were there any stories through your career where you may have been in a combat zone, for example, but you witnessed moments of kindness and compassion, whether it was amongst the men that you served with or the men, women, and children that you were trying to protect?
1: So um, things that I did, either nationally or internationally, I don't think I can speak specifically about, but what I can say is certainly the the guys that I served along with in JTF two when we were in a situation that was adverse, um, we were off we were almost split personality, if you will, purely focused on the mission and getting the job done, but at the same time uh, being a human and realizing that um, this this is not something that is going to happen at all costs. And so I would, I don't know if uh, I'm not speaking out of turn here, because it's only my opinion. Uh, I would suggest this, that uh, within JTF2, I considered us to be a more surgical uh, element of the Canadian Armed Forces. And so it wasn't shock and awe that we were responsible for. It was, for lack of a better term, a more thoughtful operator who delineated nuance a little bit better and had enough latitude to be able to make a decision that was more thoughtful in the moment. Now, whether that moment was just milliseconds or whether that moment was weeks is uh, unimportant. The reality is that at that level of operator, you were, I would almost say, more human Than um or I was more human than I would have been when I was a standard issue infantryman? I hope that makes sense.
0: No, it does completely. I know prior, one of our prior conversations, we talked about burnout as well. So let's kind of tie all that together. What in your eyes happens when because I see compassion for fatigue in the fire service and paramedics? What happens in our military where that line kind of gets swayed so far the other way that some of the men and women that we sent over there to do good ultimately do bad. And, and these, these are rare examples. I understand that completely. But when, you know, what, what are some of the contributing factors that you see where that human element that you held onto kind of gets dis- discarded amongst the, the, you know, the, the white noise of everything else?
1: That's a great question. And, and I think there's a number of different things that can negatively impact a performance in those kind of uh, roles. Certainly the first one that comes to mind, and arguably, by a long shot, the most impactful is sleep. And so that could be either shift work, um, circadian rhythm, rhythm shifting, or it could simply be the operational tempo is so stiff that you're getting, you know, maybe 2 hours in a 3 day cycle and man that's no good not only is for all of the reasons that we both understand not only is it negatively impacting your real time performance but over the long haul it's impacting your long term performance and that erosion of real time and long term performance can be insidious it can be invisible and and you might not be aware of your um, decaying abilities until months later when you look back in retrospect and realize, wow, uh, I, I used to be good to go, but I realize now I'm not as good to go. Here's the good news in my opinion, though. It seems to me that more and more... Um, modern societies becoming aware of the downside or the negative impacts of shift work and lack of sleep. Now, certainly you've done your part to put that word out in respect to the fire services and and, uh, first responders. Uh, Shift work is a terrible thing. There's ways that it can be managed, but ultimately sleep is so critical to high performance that It's a thing that has to be taken more seriously, in my opinion. The word is out, but I'm not sure enough is still being done to really address that critical element. Sleep is key.
0: Well, it's funny when we open the conversation with alcohol is the devil. I mean, basically, you know, if you really boil it down and then the other side of the spectrum is sleep. And you look at you know the fire service, the military, so many of our professions, we take away sleep and we add alcohol, so <laughs> we've got everything backwards basically
1: yes yeah, and and then at the end of the day, uh, or at the end of whatever the morning, uh, whatever time you're about to go to sleep after you've had a few beers, now you're eating some cold pizza just before you hit the rack, and uh, you know it's just a an accumulation of bad choices that are either Mm, bred into the system over years and years and years of repetition uh, or or are okayed by the culture of the organization that you're with. Now, I want to draw a good comparison here um, to help anyone out there understand that it's it's not common for uh, we'll call them elite warriors or elite units to... Uh, abuse themselves uh, willingly. So any abuse that uh, an elite unit would accept is part of the job. You wouldn't, as a a member of that kind of organization, then get your party on or or drink uh, a, a crazy amount as compared to when Certainly, I was an infantryman, as I saw it once I switched over to tier one, my responsibilities as a national asset became a lot more critical. We'll say it became a lot more or held a lot more weight. so I held myself to a higher level of standard or a higher level of responsibility and therefore started reducing my uh, my drinking and started looking at ways to perform at a higher level until i became a badge member of gtf 2 I hadn't really considered high performance as a thing. But once I entered into that role, I I then began to read and look for ways to perform better because the job was so hard. I was just looking for ways to make it a bit easier. And at that time, there we didn't have any subject matter experts that were uh, carefully co-located with us to help guide us down a path of education. It It has existed for a long time now within those kind of units where there are outside sources that are educating the operators as to how to run their program, their life, in a more holistically positive way so that they can perform better. But that was not the case when I was uh, on the teams. And so the point I'm making is... I took it upon myself to try to do better in respect to getting more sleep, not drinking, et cetera, et cetera. But that was just a personal effort. Um, culturally at the time, there was no, uh, line in the sand drawn between, well, now you're on the teams. Now you've got a X, Y, Z, but perhaps that is the case now. And if it isn't the case now, uh, it should be. And on that point, culturally speaking, within the military as a whole, within the Canadian Armed Forces, I know that drinking is okayed. In fact, in certain instances, it's it's promoted as part of that uh, um, um, camaraderie, for lack of a better term. But I don't agree with that anymore. There was a time when I did agree with it, but I don't agree with it now based on the science of alcohol and how disruptive it is to a recovery protocol. And and it just makes no sense to me to go out and do a hard charging two week effort as a team. And then at the end of it, when you're all wiped out uh, like uh, on, on your, you know, you're, you've know, you got hardly anything left to give, then you celebrate with a 12-pack a, a of beer and and just trash your system some more. So I would love to see culturally how alcohol could be minimized uh, so that it is still respective of camaraderie and esprit de corps and etc., but isn't the uh, main feature of a get-together.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. I think with that high-performance element... It's funny how you know you in in the fire service has a phrase you know it's for them meaning the people that we serve and damn right it should be but then when you look at a lot of things that we do in our profession whether it's the lack of uh innovation in what we wear and hanging on to you know a hundred year old fire helmet for example or the lack of physical fitness you know the standards in in the profession the the absolute lack of effort into addressing the shifts and you know just going to funeral after funeral after funeral but also the mental health side it is a tough nut to crack and it is hard for some people to get over that stigma but if we put it as a performance tool simultaneously alongside the mental health and, and and educate them and say look when your mind is is a maelstrom when you've got all these things that you haven't addressed you cannot get into a flow state it's it's physically impossible to have a flow state you've got to have all those hours of training you've got to have high stress environment you've got to have a calm mind so you educating police fire ems etc that performance is incredibly important that's why we need to look at fitness standards sleep and mental health i think reframing it with that lens would actually help move the needle and then it really would be for them and then you look at alcohol consumption as well i mean the fire service you know we drink for for weddings and funerals and and births and after a big fire and you take a step back and look "Look, we drink for everything and the only time you have off you drink and you destroy your sleep on that night as well so by framing it to performance, just like an athlete would, just like a tier one operator would, I think that's a much healthier, more productive, understandable lens to, to use.
1: Yeah, no, you know, I think there's a real opportunity for any organization, and, and, and it's this. If you don't already have it in your organization, you need to get it externally, but the opportunity is this. Look for the right person who can sit down with a crew and inspire them. Not not berate them, not, not tell them they need to lose 30 pounds, not tell them that they need to be able to do more than one burpee. Just inspire them in the sense that, hey, you can live a better life. And it kind of looks like this. This is what myself and several others can achieve um, this year based on our emotional, physiological, and psychological state, which is allowing us to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm thinking of the human performance project that uh, you've got going with your crew coming up in the next little while where people are going to be doing tough things. And then at the end of that tough thing, they are then going to figure out ways to heal after the tough thing. And it's that healing part that isn't often discussed after shift. The things that are discussed after shift is, man, that was hard and this was hard and then he did that thing and then we did that thing. But there's never uh, a point taken or a moment set aside to talk about how can we do better this month? And that better isn't always let's get the ladder up faster or let's get the vehicle started sooner, or let's put the boots in the right area. It can be about that sort of um, hippie kind of um, whale music sort of scenario, namaste sort of thing, where rather than it being a, a negative, it's now positive. Hey, let's talk about how to chill out. Let's talk about how to Downregulate. Let's talk about when's the last time you uh, meditated? When's the last time you journaled? When's the last time you just stopped thinking for a few minutes? There's lots of conversations that could be had, but if it's not already happening within an organization, it's now time for the organization to proactively figure out why. And if it's not capable of happening internally, then and an organization needs to start reaching out externally to bring in someone or something that is going to be outside of the box.
0: 100%. And I think that's the most pertinent part of the 7X project. 7X is the is the crucible that they're going through. It's the preparation before... But then the the reboot, you know, the 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 recovery phase. That's really going to be the bulk of the manual they're going to create. Is how we're already destroying our people. How do we how do we reboot them and get them as close to zero as we can again? I think that's the the biggest takeaway from this manual and the docu series that will follow.
1: It's it's a conversation that has been going on for I want to say five, maybe 10 years, certainly as a high performance race coach uh, during my 15 years that I was doing that, I can think back to when I started and conversations how to do life better weren't really prevalent. They weren't common. They, You could go find ways to do life better, but you had to dig, dig, dig to get some of those solutions. Well, nowadays, it's almost being handed to people on a silver platter. I mean, you've almost got to try uh, your best to evade good information. You almost have to turn it into a hobby to stay away from good advice. Uh, it's there, right for the taking on a silver platter, if you open your mind to just doing life better. So, what holds people back? I think, you know, some stubbornness, perhaps, that it's my way or the highway. That could be part of it. But I, I think that. Sometimes we get caught in our own rut. We figure out that what we're doing is what we've always done. And this is what I'm always going to do. And I don't, I don't buy into that. I think that everyone should adopt a white belt mentality. As soon as a a new challenge pops its head up, wrap a, a, a white belt around your waist and start approaching it as a beginner, eager to learn how to do it better. And Through that process, through that growth mindset, through that uh, pursuing uh, interesting challenges that you might feel uncomfortable in that moment or that week or that month over time, it's what makes us all better human beings. And, And it's not hard to find. It's right there around the corner. If you just poke your head around the corner and take a look, we all have things that we can do better at. But instead of assigning them as hard, hard homework, it should be assigned as, wow, I'm kind of stoked to crush that thing, to take that challenge on and see where it takes me as a human being. Absolutely. Well,
0: I want to hit one more topic before we kind of round off this conversation, the transition out of the military seems to be, you know, a stumbling block for many people for all the right reasons. You were, you had this incredible identity. You had this, this extremely, you know, tight knit tribe around you. You had a sense of purpose and then you transition out and now your ID doesn't work and you're outside the, you know, whatever base that you were operating from. Um, and sometimes that's an issue for people if they don't have something to transition into so what was your transition out like for you personally and how did that ultimately uh, send you to human performance in the
1: mountain biking world that's a great question and i'll start off by saying the transition was super hard It was, it was not easy at all. One of the hardest things I've done. It was going from a million miles an hour to about three miles an hour. Uh, From JTF two, I went and taught in at uh, the largest police college in Canada for about a year, and then uh, after leaving that. I was onto what I would consider civilian street proper, uh, where I wasn't involved in any military or paramilitary organizations. I was just walking the sidewalk as a regular uh, person, we'll call it. And uh, I was lucky to see a computer uh, school where they were teaching programming and, and networking. And I decided. What's going on over there? I went and had a quick conversation with the owners of the school and I got it in my head that that's what I was going to do. And after a period of time, I became a computer system engineer. And from there, I started teaching for about three years, uh, people how to computer system engineer. And uh, it was a really rewarding time in my life. It was valuable teaching all kinds of um, the people who are in need of um, uh, a break in life. They were on employment insurance or uh, they were um, new to the country. And this was their only hope to get a job, perhaps. And so for those three years, I was really rewarded by working with other human beings, making them better. But... Um, I, I hadn't had much of a transition between leaving JTF2 and then computer system engineering teaching. And so I was starting to feel the heat. I was pretty frazzled my days while I was teaching computer system engineering, I was teaching day class from nine till five. And then I was teaching night class from six till 10. And then I was going home and I was writing a book on computer system engineering that got published across North America. So at the tail end of my uh, teaching phase, I wasn't getting much sleep. I had a lot of pressure. I was designing my own course programs. It was all on me and I was feeling it. So, you know, I kind of handed in my resignation, said, you're going to go have to find a new head instructor. And it was at that point that I realized, holy moly, I got to take a breath. Uh, I've got to down-regulate a little bit. So I bought a mountain bike, and uh, that was the start of my mountain biking phase. <laughs>
0: so I got a guest coming on, uh, Brian Bushway, um, and he is actually blind. And I haven't had mm. this conversation yet, but from what I understand, he actually uses a version of sonar, you know, human sonar to downhill race which you know i I wish i could give you more information but i haven't really you know dived into it yet but uh yeah when when you think of the mountain biking world i mean there's so many different areas so talk to me about what you bring from um uh, jtf2 and all the principles and philosophies and experience and how you apply
1: that now to elite athletes and your own performance that's a great question and i think probably the greatest lesson or, or the greatest Mm, improvement factor for me is the ability to understand adversity. And so the 24 hour solo mount bike racing uh, format is really hard. You race nonstop for 24 hours. If you put your foot on the ground, you're losing time. And so I've done 30 24 hour solos. I would say that for the first seven hours or six hours until you have to put your night lights on, if your foot is touching the ground, you're making a mistake. So you race nonstop, you eat and drink on on the bike. Uh, The only time you stop is if the weather gets so atrocious that you've got to grab a shell or whatever the case is, but to be able to race 24 hours nonstop, man, there's some dark moments out there. It doesn't matter who you are. Uh, If you're working hard, you're working hard, whether it's your first 24 hour solo or your 20th, 24 hour solo, it, it, doesn't matter. There's hard times out there. And it's what do you do in those hard times that makes the difference? And I would suggest that the people who have success when those hard times show up are people who have faced them before they're in a, a race environment or a competitive environment. Um, you need to train in peace as you would for war, or you need to face the hardship before you stand on the start line to face hardship. And if while you're out there, those hard times are occurring and you're thinking to yourself, wow, this is way harder than I thought, or I've never faced anything this hard. Well, now that's a gift. That's a, a, an awesome opportunity for you to get right with the moment. And and you'll get to make a choice. You'll either get to quit or you'll get to proceed ahead. And it doesn't matter which one you choose, because after the fact, you're going to learn from having faced that adversity anyway. So I would suggest that one of the big advantages that I had, and certainly that I created for my athletes, preparing them for some of these really hard events was get used to the idea of we're going to be facing some adversity. Because if you can normalize the abnormal into pretty normal, well, now you've got a good fighting edge. You've certainly got a foot up over all of those around you on that start line who haven't faced enough adversity before the adverse moment comes on. And so I could always rely on my adversity. I would suggest the other thing that worked to my advantage is I have a very strong understanding of not just racing. But operationally, 90% of it is mental, and the other 10% of it is mental. Life is a mental game, and your results will be determined by how much you prioritize in that moment, how you want it to turn out. Now, you can't control all the chaos but you can control a lot of it by actively seeking to control it, by owning the moment, by prioritizing it appropriately so that you can make things happen rather than uh, face the whims of uh, fate, if we'll call it that, where you feel like you can't control the moment and you're not even going to try. My suggestion would be if you're good with adversity – Now your mindset has to be, and I'm going to control this moment. And if you can apply 100% mental control in the moment, well, now you'll never have any regrets in the future, five years, 10 years from now, if you're 100% applying your best effort every second of that 24-hour solo race or every second of your life. Absolutely amazing. Thank
0: you so much. I'm sure people listening would love to hear more. Maybe some of them are computer programmers that want to learn more about your book um, or, (laughs) you know, the the human performance coaching. So where are the best places online and or social media to find you and reach out?
1: Well, I only exist really in one spot and it's on Instagram. And you can find me at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, Taylors, T-A-Y-L-O-R-S, Sean Taylors. And uh, mostly I'm just over there having fun, uh, riding, doing jujitsu, hanging out with my family, and occasionally talking about uh, things in my life and perhaps in other people's lives. And uh, mostly the IG page is about trying to, mm, I think, inspire others to just do better, be better, be more awesome, seek more for themselves, learn more about life, and, and push their boundaries just a bit more so that they can be more awesome for themselves and others that's what my instagram page is about though i would argue i don't do it that well um so that's the only place i exist socially well sean i want to say thank you so
0: much that we had two amazing conversations i feel this really has been a perfect culmination of those two um and i just want to thank you for being so generous with your time today
1: well, thanks for having me on. Of course, it's a privilege and an honor to be on your platform, and uh, kudos to you for everything that you've done. I, I think that most guests thank you for your time, as I am doing right now, but uh, um, really, from the bottom of my heart, thanks for everything that you do, James.